Jesus Christ. His sick fuck did experiments on Jews with seawater. Why seawater? Well, most Luftwaffe airmen died not from being shot down, but from exposure when they parachuted into the sea. The Nazis needed to find a way to prolong life in the ocean, so they used juice as lab rats. He forced them to ingest gallons of salt water, siphoned it down their throats until their bellies distended and their organs failed. He drowned in their own bodies and he kept going even when he knew he'd never find a solution. That disturbing clip we just heard is from the Amazon original drama series, Hunters. In that scene, the show's main character, Jonah Heidelbaum, played by Logan Lerman, reads a file on Dieter Zweigelt, a Nazi doctor the hunters are tracking in order to find an even more depraved Nazi doctor known as the Ghost. In fact, several of the fictionalized Nazi war criminals in Hunters are doctors. For students of history and consumers of pop culture, that idea, the the Nazi doctor, is very familiar. It's the ultimate symbol of unadulterated evil. That seawater experiment that they're talking about, that really happened. In this episode of Paperclip, we'll talk about these Nazi doctors, medical doctors and research doctors, namely chemists, who, despite being associated with these unthinkable atrocities, were brought to the United States after the war under Operation Paperclip. Even more shocking, some continued to contribute to unethical, government-sanctioned human experiments right here on American soil. This is Paperclip, a podcast series funded by Amazon Studios and produced by LA Times Studios in support of the Emmy-eligible original drama series Hunters, starring Al Pacino and Logan Lerman. I'm Michael Ian Black. I'm a comedian, writer, and a history buff here with historian and author Dr. Monique Laney. Hi, Monique. Hey, how are you, Michael? I'm good now, but I'm expecting to get maybe a little queasy. I I think this is going to be maybe the toughest episode. When we start talking about what these experiments were, how they came to be, and who ended up being experimented upon, it's, it's bad. It's real bad. Yes, there's no two ways of saying that. A bit later, Monique and I are going to speak with author and historian Maura Phillips-Makowski about Operation Paperclip's role in American aviation and aerospace medicine. So, Monique, when we talk about paperclip engineers, the, the, the people we've been talking about previously, their role in the Nazi war effort is pretty clear. Like, they were physicists and mathematicians, and they designed missiles, and and they did computations. But why did doctors have such a central role in Hitler's regime? It's my understanding, and it makes actually sense when you think about Nazi ideology, that doctors would be the ones who are basically in charge of making sure that the people that are part of the nation all adhere to the same standard that's that idea and ideal of what a Nazi should look like, what a good German should look like. So like in the same way that engineers and scientists were advancing the science of war, these doctors were advancing the, and now I'm going to very much use air quotes, science of 
race and racialism and creating this idea of what we have in our heads as the Nazi master race. Right. And in that way, they really kind of also embody this ideology in in the most profound way, which is probably also why we see so much of them even today when we talk about the Nazi period. The doctors seem to be very prominent. To understand these doctors and what they were involved with directly or, or indirectly, and I'm sure a lot of listeners are familiar with the Nuremberg trials, but can you explain what they were and tell us about the doctor's trial? I think everybody knows that this was about holding top-level people accountable and prosecuting them for war crimes or crimes against humanity. This doctor's trial was one of 13 trials that were carried out in Nuremberg, Germany. They had about 23 physicians and administrators um, on trial. And of course, there were hundreds of doctors who could have been on trial. Of those, only 16 were found guilty. And of those, again, seven were sentenced to death. Even after already narrowing down how many people they were going to actually put on trial, they still couldn't find all of them guilty. What were these doctors accused of? War crimes and crimes against humanity, and then conspiracy to do such things, as well as being members of criminal organizations. Can you explain to me, what's the difference between a war crime and a crime against humanity? Crimes against humanity can occur even outside of war. Essentially, crimes that are committed using human subjects abusively, whereas war crimes are more specific crimes that are committed in the context of war, for example, in order to help the military, right? So you're committing crimes using human subjects, and these human subjects really suffer under this, but it's in the context of war in order to help the military move forward, test things that the military might find useful. The other war crime is anything done against POWs, and I think that's what most people are familiar with. Mm. So there's obviously a lot of overlap between these two things. Of course. Crimes against humanity and war crimes. So like, where did these experiments take place? And exactly who were they experimenting on? Generally, experiments were in in the big concentration camps, Auschwitz, Buchenwald, Ravensbruck. Of course, you have Jews, but you also have the Roma, which are a gypsy group, people with mental or physical disabilities, homosexuals, POWs. So anybody who would have ended up in a camp could have been part of these experiments. Um, Let's drill down a little bit and describe a few of these experiments and what they entailed. This is where I think it starts to get grisly, but I think it's important for people to understand exactly what they were doing and why they were doing it. The ones that we might want to talk about are the ones that were done for aviation medicine. So there are three main areas, high-altitude experiments, hypothermia experiments, and seawater experiments. And all of these were really, I mean, when you read about these, you go, what, how is that supposed to bring any viable, useful information on how to help uh, the when soldiers? When you pump somebody's stomach full of salt water until they die? Is that what you Yeah. Do you really need to test that multiple times? So this is where I think the question between war crimes and crimes against humanity is blurred. With the high altitude experiments, they put people into a decompression chamber, pump out the air in this completely sealed compartment in order to kind of simulate those high altitude conditions and then monitor their physical responses. You could see how that might be useful, but then doing it until they die or dissecting their bodies 
while they're still alive to see what's happening, that's really gruesome and goes far beyond what would be useful. There's also the hyperthermia, so freezing experiments. And in these cases, uh, what they would do is they would place people into icy water, ice cold water, which in itself sounds horrible, sometimes Mm -hmm. in suits, but often also naked. And just like with the high altitude experiments, measure physical responses until basically the victims lost consciousness. And then the next step would be to try out ways to reheat their bodies to bring them back. Um, And some of those are just bizarre things. Scalding baths sound Mm -hmm. really dangerous. And another awful thing they did was bring in naked women. Uh, So that's concentration camp prisoners to lay next to the men that were freezing and try to warm them up with the physical body. uh, What possible use could that be? Like if you were, I mean, if you, just on, I'm thinking of the, the battlefield. Like somebody's cold, they're freezing, they're in danger, and then you just the, like the medical corps calls in naked women to come and <laughs> like what is that? That's just bizarre to me. Oh my god, I hate to laugh at that, but but it's um, true. Yeah. It's so it's like torturous and bizarre and and just horrendous. Even as you're describing it, I mean, when you say dissecting brains while people are alive, okay, that obviously is gruesome and an atrocity. But even when like we label it under a high altitude test or a freezing test or testing to help aviators who find themselves in seawater, it almost has a kind of banality to it until you read what they were actually doing. So I'm going to read a description of this from PBS. They did a series on this. And so this is the seawater experiment. It says, Dr. Hans Eppinger and others at Dachau conducted experiments on how to make seawater drinkable. The doctors forced roughly 90 Roma to drink only seawater while also depriving them of food. The Roma became so dehydrated that they reportedly licked floors after they had been mopped just to get a drop of fresh water. The experiments caused enormous pain and suffering and resulted in serious bodily injury. I understand that the hope would be that you would save your aviators who had fallen into seawater, but if you're maiming, injuring, often killing other human beings to get that result, then then your methodology is invalid because you're canceling out whatever good intentions you have with the evil way that you got there. This is something that has been done in other places as well. Yep. So Nazi ideology is not the only racist and discriminatory ideology that has governed societies and that has led to atrocious ways of dealing with humans that are not considered the same as us, in quotation marks. The point you're making, I think, is well taken and extremely important, which is that we can point fingers at Nazis and should and have and will continue to do so as maybe the most extreme version or one of the most extreme versions of this kind of injustice and inhumanity. Yes. But many, many other civilizations and cultures, including our own, also share a history of abusing either their own citizens or people that they deem less than. One infamous example that was going on here in America at the same time is the Tuskegee syphilis experiment. Thank you. Where Americans were infecting 
people with syphilis to see what happens, right? They were not infected by syphilis, but they were not being treated. Ah. So what happened was in the Tuskegee syphilis experiment, by the way, just 20 minutes down the road for, from where I am, Tuskegee, mm-hmm. the people were, the, the, and this was all African-American men, um, mm-hmm. were told that they would be treated for syphilis and, and for a couple of other potential problems, and then they weren't. Even though we had treatment, you know, in 1947 already, we had penicillin uh, that would have helped in the treatment. They were not given that. So we're no innocents in any of this, right. ultimately. Yeah. This is a difficult topic, so we it's good to kind of hash and it out. it's hard because we're talking about people's bodies, and, you know, there's, there's something about working somebody to the point of exhaustion or death it feels very different, even though the result may end up being similar or the same. It's very intimate. It's very, very intimate. When you're robbing them of oxygen to see how long it is before they die, when you're putting them in freezing water to see how long they can survive, the end result between that and being sent to the gas chamber are the same, but that intimacy makes it feel so much worse. Yes, Maybe because it feels torturous, we can envision ourselves in that moment. We can feel what that icy water must have felt like and the bewilderment and shock and terror of those moments as you're just sitting there shivering, waiting for hypothermia to kill you. I mean, it's just so awful and inexcusable. Right. You're absolutely right. One of the things that's really actually bothersome to me is that even after these experiments, and we knew about this, even after World War II, the Nuremberg Codes that came out and all that, these things still kept going on to some degree until the 70s. We'll hear more about that later. But let's get back to the paper clippers. So if we had to crown the most famous of the paperclip doctors. And there were 34 aviation doctors who came to the U.S. after the war. But the most famous was a guy named Hubertus Strugholt, who is known as the father of space medicine. He himself invented that term, space medicine. In Germany, he worked in the Department of Aviation Medicine at the German Experimental Institute for Aviation in Berlin. And he was one of the world's authorities on the effects of aviation on the human body. And, and, and to find out more about him and his role in the U.S., we're going to have some input from an expert. And I'd like to welcome her now, Maura Phillips-Makowski, the author of a book called Testing the Limits, Aviation Medicine, and the Origins of Manned Spaceflight. And she can help us understand what aviation medicine is, space medicine, and how Hubertus Strughold figured into all of this. Whenever we have guests on, I'm always just curious about how they came to this work, and I'm curious about how you uh, got interested in, in your topic of expertise and, and how you came to learn about Hubertus Struggled. I was working on a doctorate in history, and the topic I picked, unfortunately, was taken by somebody else. We have to do a <laughs> dissertation. So scrambling around, and one thing that kept catching my eye was very fascinating, was the doctor's working in this field and how they all experimented on themselves. So I started looking at them and I discovered there was another contingent in Germany and I had never heard of them either. Everyone hears about Werner von Braun, but no one knows really about Dr. Strughold until they study this field. I found out about him and all the other people and the similar 
things they had done and how they came together and answered the question of when NASA was ready to put people into space, how did they know it was a place anyone could survive? And the answer was they turned to people in aviation medicine, these same doctors. Can you give us a quick overview of Dr. Strughold? Sure. Dr. Strughold, as a young man, was studying physiology, which is the science of how bodily systems work, such as blood pressure control, automatic breathing, red blood cell manufacture, all those sorts of systems. And he was working on an MD and a PhD. And he was a young man around the same time that Lucky Lindy made that famous flight across the Atlantic Ocean. Suddenly the world is smaller and aviation is a hot topic. He started taking flying lessons, glowing up in balloons, and why not experiment on oneself? You can only fit so many people in a balloon or in the cockpit of a biplane. Ultimately, when he graduated, he worked for a couple years in a lab and then was called by a friend to work in Berlin. And that's how he got the job, heading the medical institute sponsored by the Luftwaffe. Luftwaffe, Luftwaffe is, is what? That's the German Air Force? Yes, it's the German Air Force under the Nazi regime. Got it. And w when you said he was doing experiments on himself, what was he doing? Well, for example, one test that has been done throughout the years is see the effects of altitude on people because they knew from the first ballooning experiences in the 1700s, if you go high enough, you will mm -hmm. pass out. If you go even higher, you will die. So what is the point at which too high is too high? At what point do you need oxygen to stay alive? So you might go up and start writing a series of numbers on a pad of paper and seeing at what point does your handwriting start to look like a drunk? Or how does your hand-eye coordination change as you're flying different acrobatic maneuvers? In oh my gosh, that just seems nuts to me. Like, let me experiment on my brain while I'm flying an airplane doing acrobatic maneuvers. That's why you have a two-seater airplane, because <laughs> you would take turns flying the plane. I see. And that the, makes more sense. Yeah, And right. he would do some things, and then he'd take over and fly for a bit while the pilot did some of the experiments. That's what he did as a student. When he went to work in the mid-1930s, in Berlin. It was a real lab, but a big part of his work was the management of the facility. And why was he so high on the list of paperclip? He organized one of the very earliest aviation medical journals, and that was considered the leading journal of its time in Europe. And it was around the same time that Americans started an aviation medicine journal. And also, if you're published, your name is out there. People in America are getting your journal and they're reading the articles you've written and vice versa. And this work in Germany, were these benign experiments or were they doing more evil experiments? Uh, Dr. Strughold's institute and some of the related institutes that were run by pilots would experiment on themselves and each other. They're trying to make aviation safe for pilots and for air crews. So their test subjects for the most part are young males ages 20 to 40, because that's who your Luftwaffe pilots are. 
in the chamber in the lab, there was one test, for example, two men went in there and they stayed in there for 70 hours because again, they're inventing respiratory equipment to go in airplanes. And they're trying to invent the pressure cabin that allows all of us to fly in a commercial jet today. So what is the proper mix of gas you should be breathing? What happens when you exhale and carbon dioxide builds up? I did experiments like that on myself in college, but they involve different chemicals. Different chemicals. Okay, well, <laughs> this was just things like oxygen, carbon dioxide, nitrogen, etc. So at what point did that then cross the line? There was a medical doctor, Dr. Rasher, and he wanted to get the credentials to be able to teach at a university. That was extremely prestigious to be a university professor. And his wife knew Heinrich Himmler, head of the SS, was very interested in some of the pseudosciences, not real science. Rusher got permission to do some experiments, and he thought to look at some of the camp inmates. And he had to get the equipment to do this. And the person with the portable aviation equipment that wasn't fixed in a laboratory was a fellow named Dr. Siegfried Ruf. And Dr. Ruf had a portable chamber. They went to Dachau, did the tests and what were the tests? Bad things happen. They would put people in a chamber testing things like at what point, if they suddenly change the pressure rapidly, similar to someone bailing out of an airplane at high altitude, what happens then? And these shouldn't have been lethal experiments. But Dr. Rasher killed a number of people. He just kept the pressure going and going and going till the subject died to the shock and horror of the ordinary scientist standing there. I, I don't know. It, th th this is also hard for me because, you know, you mentioned yeah. the shock and horror of the doctor who's there, but they're, they're at Dachau. They're on the premises of a concentration camp, but the experimentation leads to the shock and horror. So the question is, at what point does Strughold know any of these things were going on? Could he have done anything? And that's where the ambiguity starts because he's not in any direct line of authority. We'll never, never know what happened in that regard. Wasn't there a conference in, ironically, Nuremberg that Strughold attended where they talked about some of these experiments? Yes, Dr. Rusher wrote up this altitude experiment and another one he did on cold. He's showing them pictures of people in a decompression chamber dying. People today wonder, couldn't they have done something about that, like denounce them publicly? But again, you're denouncing somebody that's not in your field. Rasher's trying to get into their profession. He never did. And toward the end of the war, for different reasons, he's shot on Himmler's order. So that's why he's not on trial at Nuremberg. So wait, uh, Himmler ends up killing Rasher. Do we know why? Rasha and his wife kidnapped children to create a larger family for themselves, a larger what? Aryan family. They... Yep. And uh, he was accused of having done dealings with concentration camp laborers so they could buy freedoms from him, which obviously Himmler wouldn't have liked. And then they were also suspected of having killed a former roommate and lab assistant of his. That's a heck of a resume. So he ends up being executed um, in Dachau. The same concentration um, camp that he was conducting experiments in. Yes, indeed. That is some beautiful Nazi karma right there. Let's just take a quick break, and we'll be right back here on Paperclip. 
Anytime I watch a really great show, I think about how it all got made. How did the creators come up with storylines? What was it like for the cast to film the big action sequence? And how did they research their roles? Prime Video Presents is a new podcast that pulls back the curtain on Amazon original series and uncovers the stories behind your favorite shows. Listen to interviews with the talented minds behind shows like The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, Transparent, The Boys, and Hunters, and find out the real-life inspirations, relationships, and experiences that go into making the shows we love. Subscribe now for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And now, back to Paperclip. Who are some of the other figures in aviation medicine who came to America under Paperclip? For instance, Dr. Theodore Bensinger, who invented what we think of today as the ear thermometer. He discovered that the tympanic membrane inside your ear was a very steady and reliable indication of body temperature, and it's right next to your brain. So now when your child gets its temperature taken painlessly and quickly, you can thank Dr. Benzinger. So Benzinger, as far as we know, had no involvement in any of these grisly human experiments? No, not at all. So it sounds like Strokold had a distinguished career in Germany, and it sounds like he was not directly involved in the kind of evil human experimentation that we were talking about. But there's another article from the New York Times that talks about a controversy against Strokeholt after he had died when the University of, was it Ohio? Basically, his portrait was up and, and people were upset about it. I'm quoting now from the article. This is talking about the 1942 conference. One of the participants who was sentenced to 20 years imprisonment for his part in the experiments, Herman Becker Freising, told the tribunal that Dr. Strokehold had known of the experiments and could have stopped them at any time because he headed the institute that conducted them. So I guess it's a question of whether Strokehold whitewashed his own participation or culpability in these experiments or not. And it seems like the truth may be kind of hard to get at. Not necessarily. Again, Strugholz ran a big laboratory in downtown Berlin. He was not the one with the portable equipment that he could have put on a truck and taken 100, 200 miles away to a camp. That's why it was the doctors that worked in completely separate departments of the government with the portable equipment that you could get and take someplace else. It sounds like what you're saying is he was a victim of bad PR and guilt by association. (laughs) And Von Braun, who was charming and likable, had his followers and people who defended him. And it sounds like Stukholt did not. We do know he did not have a great personality. He thought he did, but he didn't. Most of us do. (laughs) (laughs) And most of us are mistaken. Well, Maura Phillips-Makowski, thank you so much for taking the time and educating us about this important figure in our story. Thank you. That was so interesting. Thank you for inviting me. I'm happy to share what I know. So at the beginning of the episode, we were describing a hunter's clip. And I mentioned a storyline in the series where the hunters search for a Nazi doctor known as the ghost. And so when they interrogate Dieter Zweigelt, 
the Nazi doctor who performed the saltwater experiments, he tells them the ghost was working as the director of medical engineering at a military research facility called Edgewood in Maryland. So to find out more, one of the hunters, Joe, who's a Vietnam vet, he visits his friend who's in a psychiatric hospital. So let's, let's hear that scene. We all thought you won the lottery when the army sent you to Edgewood instead of now. And now I see we were both deployed to war. Listen, I'm... I'm trying to find the motherfucker who's in charge of these experiments. The man who did this to you. But everything is classified. No files, no witnesses. I need the name of the director of medicine at Edgewood. He'd been an older man, 60s, German accent. Can you give me his name, Eric? Okay, so a lot of Hunters is obviously fictionalized, but Edgewood is real. It was where they made some of the poisonous gases used in chemical warfare. And there is a history of human experimentation at Edgewood, and it does have a direct connection to Operation Paperclip. From 1948 to 1975, the U.S. Army Chemical Corps conducted classified human subject research at Edgewood to study the effects of chemical warfare on thousands of American soldiers. These experiments uh, involved exposure to hundreds of different chemicals, including nerve agents, mustard gas, and drugs like LSD. In the 1980s, a journalist named Linda Hunt revealed that several paper clippers worked at Edgewood. Now, Monique, I know that some of Linda Hunt's work is in dispute, but the broad strokes seem to be accurate. Is that right? I think it's actually the opposite. She makes really broad accusations and broad claims. So individual facts that she got from the archives, those are not in dispute. It's her interpretation of the facts sometimes that people take issue with. So the Nazis were studying chemical weapons uh, in the war. And there were three in particular whose names I won't get right. I know one of them is Saren, one of them is Soman, and one of them is Tabun. Is that right? Yeah, right. And at the conclusion of the war, the Americans got their hands on those formulas. And in some cases, the scientists who developed them and brought them to Edgewood, where we did our own experiments on chemical weaponry. And when we talk about experiments at Edgewood, we should clarify that the nature of the experiments was bad in a lot of cases here in America, but objectively different than, the, than, than they were conducted in Germany. For example, Americans did volunteer. Sometimes they didn't know exactly what they were volunteering for, but they were volunteers and they knew that there were going to be experiments. That gets into a really interesting conversation we should probably have about human subjects experiments in general in the United States. 
Up until the 70s, there wasn't a whole lot of policing of that sort of thing. And so even though they might have said, yeah, I'll give consent, they were not actually informed of what they were giving consent for. Nowadays, you can't do that anymore. Like you would immediately be taken to trial. But in those days, things were a little more lax, right? So I routinely give consent for things I don't understand when I'm signing for credit cards or Twitter or whatever. But I guess this is very different. I think that would be a little different. I think you might look twice if you were asked to inhale something or swallow something. Oh, you don't know me very well, Monique. (laughs) Okay. Well, you should. (laughs) Yeah. The informed consent idea comes out of Nuremberg, out of the Nuremberg trials and the Nuremberg code. But mm-hmm. making sure that people actually use this and, and in a proper way and that it's not abused and interpreted in multiple ways so that it's very clear, that comes in the 70s. One of the Edgewood paper clippers who I find really interesting is a guy named Friedrich Fritz Hoffman. And he conducted chemical experiments for the Third Reich during World War II. Fritz Hoffman, and I'm, I'm quoting Hunt here, compiled bibliographies of literature on toxic chemicals, wrote reports, and conducted tests using some of the 10 tons of nerve and mustard gas that had been shipped from Germany to Edgewood and other American arsenals in 1946. And Dr. Seymour Silver, who was the scientific director at Edgewood, says that Hoffman, quote, brought to our attention any discoveries that happened around the world and then said, here's a new chemical, you better test it. Right. So paper clippers that they brought over, according to Linda Hunt, they had three roles, essentially, right? One is to test poisonous gases that were invented uh, by the Nazis, not necessarily themselves, but by Nazi doctors. Um, Taboon and Sarin, which is you mentioned earlier, The other was to actually analyze documents from Nazi Germany that were created with these tests. And then the third, and that's what Hoffman was doing mainly, to locate plants and poisons for hallucinogenic mind control drugs. Oh, cool. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, that sounds cool. (laughs) Uh, It actually sounds like a good job, right? Because apparently he had good language skills. And so they sent him out around the world and had him collect, you know, plants and poisons that he thought they should then test. So how were they testing hallucinogenic drugs and why were they doing that? I mean, I I kind of understand like the idea of mind control. How cool would that be if you could control the minds of enemy soldiers? But I mean, was that ever realistic? What were they thinking? Well, exactly that. This was supposed to be low-dose chemical warfare, right? So instead of, you know, blasting everybody and just killing them, Potentially, you could manipulate them to do things you want them to do, or you could slow them down, or whatever, right? I mean, things to give your own soldiers an advantage. So trying out all these different substances was a way to find out, okay, well, how do people react to that? Uh, By the way, they also tested things like protective clothing and vaccines, pharmaceuticals. So, you know, it wasn't all just about nerve agents and LSD. No, but even like when you're testing a vaccine on somebody and that person doesn't know exactly what's being injected into them, like you said, like that seems kind of scary to me. Um, I mean, it seems really scary to me. No kidding. (laughs) Do we know if any of the Americans involved in these experiments 
experiments suffered long-term ills or deaths? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, from what I found so far, it looks like they did very quick, immediate medical follow-ups uh, on the soldiers, and then they sent them off on their merry way, essentially. And so there was no testing later, like 10 years later or 20 years later. So what we have is essentially people who think that they have had long-term impact, but we don't have clear evidence of that, or at least I'm not aware that we have. The Institute of Medicine did a study and reported that presumably there were no long-term health effects from these studies. But, you know, can we be sure? I don't know. Wow. So Edgewood was conducting these experiments for almost 30 years on human subjects with a variety of chemical agents, poisons, hallucinogens, and then vaccines, and protective clothing. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> right. And alcohol and caffeine, you know, all that. <laughs> all that stuff. Um, it's hard for me to believe that there weren't some adverse long-term effects, and it's equally hard for me to believe that report. But, you know, it's so funny how our perception of our own government, at least my perception of the government, has changed so much since, like, the Vietnam era, when we were spraying Agent Orange, which I assume was tested at Edgewood. And we know that those Agent Orange cases came back to bite both sides in the ass. So it's impossible for me to believe that that was the only substance that injured people. I think you're right. It's very hard to prove that something that happened to you or that you were given years ago has this long-term effect. And yet we can draw a straight line from World War I, where the Germans became really efficient in the use of poison gases, through World War II, where they were con continuing to do research on nerve agents, to the end of World War II, to Operation Paperclip, to Edgewood, there's just a straight line of people doing bad stuff in the name of what they think is good. And it gets to the heart of, I think, what this whole podcast series is about, you know, in a similar way, what the television series Hunters is about. And it just raises the questions of what makes a hero, what makes a villain, and how do we wrestle with these really deep, ethical, moral questions? And the deeper we get into this, Monique, the less sure I feel about the answers. Join the club. <laughs> <laughs> Paperclip is funded by Amazon Studios and produced by LA Times Studios. The Los Angeles Times Newsroom was not involved in the creation of this series. The views expressed on this podcast are not necessarily the views of Amazon Studios or the LA Times. <laughs>